Welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales. This week we're sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. And this week I'm speaking to a friend, sheep breeder, commentator and all-round good guy, Scott Brown from East Lothian, just south of Edinburgh. Hi Scotty, it's great to have you on the podcast at last. Hi Andy, uh, thanks so much for having us on. No bother, it's, you and I go back a while. And, and, and you cut your teeth at your parents' place at uh, Stonefield Hill, of course the family being well known as early Texel sheep breeders as well as winning just about every fat stock competition in the land. It was some, some pretty good grounding for you, I guess. Yeah, fairly good baptism if I'm on reflection, I suppose, Andy, uh, both on the commercial, commercial side of things and the pedigree side of things with the Texels and the Suffolks. So that kind of was the was where the bug kicked in, I suppose. Uh-huh. Um, and you and I met through a mutual friend in the 90s, uh, I think it was, uh, Scott. Yeah, Mark Riddle, he's got a lot to answer for, Andy, hasn't he? <laughs> How's he doing? I'm doing a while. Just tell him I was asking for him if you see him. Yeah, well, no, Mark's doing really well, actually. Um, he's doing great. Uh, and, and you and he would, would learn speaking through the Young Farmers Movement uh, going back the way. Which club was that that you were in together? Uh, Mark and I were both in the South Midlothian Young Farmers Club. We, were in the, we weren't ever in the same speech-making team uh, because Mark's a little bit older than me, as obviously everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I definitely looked up to him because his, uh, his elocution and his uh, delivery on most things is excellent, as you know. Um, uh, and, yeah, learned a lot from Mark. He, he was superb, actually. The Young Farmers, for some of our overseas listeners, but it's a fantastic movement, and it and it all these these things that it brings to the youngsters but to be given the opportunity to to learn how to how to speak and speech making and uh, and i think mark went on to train some of the younger speech teams as well didn't he i mean it, it's a great grounding for for any youngsters isn't it yeah it is andy i mean mark we were very lucky actually we had a gentleman called andrew lorraine smith from Hagbury was uh, he was our trainer and uh, that uh, he would have he would have trained a lot of young farmers actually over the years Mark and myself included in that number. And uh, yeah, the Young Farmers is a fantastic organisation. It pulls together lots of skill sets that stand you better and well in life, uh, you know, after that, once you've left. Not to mention the power of drinking. <laughs> and and uh, the speech-making competitions, I think you guys would have gone on, and it was a national thing throughout Scotland, wasn't it? You guys would have gone on and... and, and yeah, we, we, we both got to national speech-making level. I, I never won. Um, I think Mark did, but we never won. We were close, uh, but got no cigar, but... Hey ho! It's the taking part that counts in the crack, isn't it? Sure, and you'd probably be involved in stock judging, and again, the stock judging—you you do need to be able to stand there and speak in front of a judge, and the speech making stands you in that good stead, doesn't it? You do, Andy. It's quite a—it's quite a daunting thing to be standing in front of um, people and giving your reasons in a room uh, where you've got a time scale and you've got—you uh, got P's and Q's to mind and work your way through diligently through uh, your reasoning behind your placings. But, you know, I think that as a judge later in life, that actually stands you in good stead as well when somebody comes up to you and said, uh, what was wrong with my sheep or what was wrong with my beast, uh, that you put it down the line. And uh, usually you have to be fore- forewarned as forearmed, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, you, I think a professional delivery, which is given to you, establish, you establish when you're in your farmers, goes a long way to helping you. It does. And, and as a good orator yourself, you, uh, I guess that's what led you into the commentary uh, side of it. And when and how did that get started there, Scott? It actually kicked off about 2010 at Dalkey Show, Andy. Um, the sheep convener retired and I took over in 2008. And um, Dalkey Show, one of the top sort of sheep sections, I suppose, in the southeast of Scotland, 
I think at its peak we had we had more sheep than the the, the Royal Show on, on the last year of the Royal Show, which whether it was rightly or wrongly, whether that was a hard thing to do or not, but we had 550 sheep that year. And we just needed to sort of revamp things a little bit, just because it, it was a little bit, suffered a little bit from the Iowa's bean culture. It had always been in the same part of the show field, and the car park was central to the show field. So uh, the first thing we did was, when I was became sheep community, I was getting my handle on things for the first couple of years. And then I just thought, I've been a great admirer of Dan Buglis, the late Dan Buglis, who always used to do commentary at the Border Union show. And I always admired his delivery and his knowledge of the industry and, and his knowledge of people as well. And I think... I think in many ways that's what made it interesting for people to listen to Dan because it was more than just reading out who won what, you know, he was able to link things together and also for people who were less informative about the industry, if you were at the show for the day and didn't know much about sheep breeds, it was actually entertaining for people that were just standing by watching and didn't know anything about the people or the sheep or the breeds. Um, so yeah, I think it's a combination of both things. Um, I admired Dan Buglis and then I thought, let's get going with some commentary, Dal Keith, and, and uh, you know, take things to another level if that's possible. Mm-hmm. So we started that, and then my brother and myself presented a trophy for the Pairs competition because I always liked that um, when it was done at the Royal Show. I admired that as well. So there's now a, a very good Pairs competition that runs after the single interbreed competition at Dal Keith Show, and I think that's um, depending who your judge is. Uh, if you get your paperwork and your ducks all in a row, you sort of say to the judge beforehand, look, I've got a lot of information to read out here. Don't go too fast. Yeah. You know, Keep an eye on me and, and remember, listen to where, I am, where I'm at and don't rush on. Um, we've had a couple of judges who've forgotten that and just rushed uh, re- reading things out quite quickly or in some cases uh, missing out a few lines just to try and get to where you need to do. But hey, that's all part and parcel of commentating, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And uh, you brought me in with a baptism of fire. My first commentating job, you brought me into the Royal Highland Showcase event uh, this year to help um, commentate on the sheep. And uh, I had a lot to live up to with uh, the Jack and Victor show in, in front of us. But Andrew, <laughs> Andrew Goldie and I gave it a, gave it a good shot. And, and uh, I learned a lot there. And as you said, I think I commentated on the interbreed pairs the one day. And you're exactly right that uh, the guy rattled through them. And I think we were reading the sheep out from the other end that he was judging them from. So there's, there's a lot. To them. But as you said, be prepared is is, uh, is for one. How, how do you think the Highland Showcase event went, uh, Scott? What, what did you make of it? Uh, well, I think like everybody was initially when it was laid on, it was a new concept. Um, it was it was going to be a new thing, very much rushed through, and there was a lot of raised eyebrows as to whether you know this would be a success, whether people wanted to be part of it, and also the uncertainty of COVID, whether it would still get to go ahead because new variants obviously can put things to can put the skip the brakes on things if if, uh, if we get another big outbreak. And um, I think they did a phenomenal job, Andy. If I'm honest, uh, from a standing start of the show being cancelled in late February to putting a general consensus of opinion out in March to actually kicking things off in the beginning of to mid-April and getting all the entries back in by middle of May to then setting a whole show up and running it a month later. To the scale they did, I just I was I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And also when you when you actually speak to some of the directors, when you speak to Simon Cousins, who was the his media company actually ran the the, uh, the showcase uh, the, the the screening of the thing, broadcasting of it. They had standard operating procedures to write out to, to to satisfy the Scottish government that you know health and safety wasn't going to be um, an issue from a point of view of COVID. So they had to do SOPs for things like taking a sheep out of a pen, putting it back in again, showing a sheep. You know, all every stone had to be uh, unturned, and, and basically nothing was left to chance. And I think they did a phenomenal job. I totally agree with that, and and we I, I watched some of the 
should I say, the comprehensive um, coverage of, of the evening before they then cut it to just the the, um, the highlights, if you like. And uh, yeah, it just seemed to be brilliant. And all these screens going on, all these different places going on, and, and it, anybody's interested in anything, we're we're, we're getting a, a pretty a pretty good coverage, I would say. And and do you think that's something that's that, that's going to move on, Scott? I mean, I, I thought it was brilliant, and I've said to them, you should do that every year, but. Has that got a place in in, in, in the event in, in future Highland shows? Do you think, or does it? Detract? Well, I know that I remember when Jack and Victor and the two Andys had a confab at the end on our last day when we we hit the last cut and we hung the mics up uh, for the year. We're all buzzing on adrenaline at the time because it was just such a rush. It was brilliant to be part of it all. The overwhelming wave of opinion from our point of view was they have to do this. It's it's not something that's come and gone in the moment. Given the success of it, I know Simon Cousins told me, Andy, that uh, they had pitched it to a lot of people who were sponsoring the event that they would be expecting about a hundred thousand uh, hits on the on the on the live stream. Um, now they they've actually achieved something like two hundred eighty thousand uh, views, which was phenomenal. Which actually spoke volumes for the appetite for it. Um, yeah, I think I think they did a, a fantastic job. I think I think that uh, is there a place for it going forward? Absolutely. I think there's been people who have engaged in the Highland Show that perhaps wouldn't have engaged in it or watched it in the past because that facility has not been there. Now, I, having reflected on it, Andy, will it be a thing going forward? From a commentary point of view, it's very different standing in the ring commentating to people that are around the ringside on what's going on in the inside of it, as opposed to commentating to people in the general public who are actually watching on the telly. Because your depth of knowledge, you could be seen as being a little bit condescending to people if you're in the middle of the ring in terms of the level of knowledge you're going to pitch it at. Sure. And if you're on, if uh, if you're in the ringside, sorry, you're going to rein back a little bit on that because people know a lot about what's going on in the ring. Whereas on the telly, um, you're you're actually commentating to all the There's things that we said in commentary that you wouldn't actually say in the ring because. Um, it's a little bit condescending, or it's a little bit old old hat to to the, most of the people around the ringside at the Highland Show. But mm. no, I think it's got a place. I think it's got a place. I think I think it went really well. The feedback's been brilliant on it. I mean, you saying that you were new to the commentary job, you you did it like you were you'd, you were a Scottish rugby player with fifty caps under your belt. It was uh, <laughs> you you absolutely done that before, Andy. So well done. Without, you. Without the I hear what you're saying, but as you, I think one of the, the issues maybe was there that the commentary we were talking on TV wasn't being heard by the people around the ring. So I suppose that's probably in some ways a good thing. So there maybe is a chance for the, for this to be... And I suppose looking at other shows, aside we look at other, other... I've been going to the Royal Welsh show for ever. And I don't know if, you ever, if you've ever been down there, Scott, to the Royal... Yeah, you were the first one, Andy, were you not? <laughs> I probably was. <laughs> and they, they, um, they, they run the, the, um, the, the TV commentary yeah s4c every day and uh, throughout the show on all the events and it's been they've always done that and and one of the one of the issues was i think with the highland show that some of the directors kind of thought that uh, if we put too good a coverage on the tv then folks wouldn't go to the show because they'd stay at home and watch it instead but i think the the the, the, the royal Welsh show gives an example that uh, they still get more people through the gate at the, at the Royal Welsh Show than all the other shows in the UK put together, I think, and and yet and that goes out on national TV. So, yeah, I agree with Andy. I think there's a place for both of them. Um, yeah, I'd be sceptical about whether. Well, initially I thought, well, if you put a live feed on, is that going to stop the? Is that going to reduce the numbers through the turnstiles and so the gate money for the Highland Show? But now nah, I think, I think you might get people watching the highlights at night, um, or you know, if they can't make it in for the judging, they might come into the show at some stage, but not make it in the judging in time, and it probably gives them an opportunity to watch it. 
Mm. Absolutely uh, right. Yeah. I mean, you can, you go to the to, to a show like the Highland or, or the Royal Welsh, and you can't get to see all the events at the same time. So you can tune into some of those, especially if they stay online for a, for a week or two afterwards, which they are. Yeah. One thing, one thing I did feel very privileged uh, as a commentator was, by, you know, you, what a cracking view you got of, you got a bird's eye view of what the judges view of the stock, didn't you? Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, you certainly did. And uh, that it was great commentating rather than being a, a mile away when you've got a monitor that's actually shining right on on the on the BC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. May, maybe a few other shows could could take the same route. I'm not sure. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, there's a couple of guys like Robert Smith. Uh, he does live streaming of for the likes of the limousines, and I think he maybe live streams the Blueface Lesters and the Beltex as well. So there's a bit of that goes on anyway, Andy. At the, the Highland Show every year. You just probably could do with. Uh, I don't know what the cost is of that. If I'm honest, I know the, the cost of doing the Highland Show one was monumental, and yeah. I think without question, without funding for that again in another year, it's probably. The cost would be too prohibitive to run it at the scale they ran it at this year. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you, but I think that, yeah, there may be a maybe hope for a, a scaled down version of that, and maybe on, on sort of simpler scale. First class scale it down. Let's let's move on from from that Highland show and talk about uh, sheep, Scott. And we mentioned your grounding with Texels, and but you and your brother chose to go with a Suffolk breed. And uh, when did you two guys start with the Capilor Suffolks? Uh, we started up in 1997. Um, it was really from the demise of the Stonefield Hill flock post sort of Mighty Visna uh, breakdown, which was 1997. The Mighty Visna was at such a level within the, the Stonefield Hill flock at that time that it looked as if there was no road back uh, for, for both the Texels and the Suffolks. So um, the Suffolks were very much um, playing second fiddle to the Texels, so it was an opportunity for Gavin and I to start on our own, and we. we there was a little farm down the road called Capia Law, which was owned by a friend of ours, Hugh Hunter. And uh, he said, look, there's there's seven acres there in a shed if you want to get going. It was only a, literally about three quarters of a mile down the road. Um, just get going if you want. So, yeah, that was it was the catalyst, really. We went down to, always admired Jack Bulmer of the Malton flock. Jack, as you remember, obviously, from your Smithfield days, Andy, yeah, great supporters yeah. of the prime stock. Mm-hmm. And I suppose very much similar to ourselves and great commercial foundation to Suffolk's and... Um, he, we, we always admired the quality of the females he had in the Malton flock when they went to the shows and sales. They were, Jack always said he cost himself a fortune in principle by following commercial traits and not going to extremities to try and produce the golden sheep for, for, for Stoneley or Edinburgh, and he's probably right, I suppose. Let's just discuss, then, and that wouldn't have been an easy time to get into the breed, because to get into the top of the breed back then, in, in, the, in the late 90s anyway, you'd need a lot of money to get to... Yeah. You know, a lot of people who start up flocks of cattle and sheep, it takes them a while to establish a, a type within their herd or their flock. And we thought we'd probably uh, eat into a bit of ground with that on that front by actually buying them all off the one place. Mm. So we bought uh, five ewes and two ewe lambs um, on that dispersal day. So really, we effectively had a flock with, with that had a type straight away. And I think that probably reflected on the lambs that we got going with the first couple of years at, at Kelso. Um, because we, we, by 2002... Uh, well, 2002, we were first in um, in the ring at, uh, at Kelso, and our first lamb through the ring was 2000, and we averaged uh, 690 for, for six lambs, and they were all still at that stage out of the molten use. So, yeah, it was a great uh, a great start. Well, you were certainly paid back uh, straight away, and you went on, I know, to win the Royal Highland Show. I can't remember what year it was, but... Uh... We personally didn't win it, Andy. We sold a lamb to the mayors from Deverinside, who... We bought JTOH28, which is a, one of the sort of, there's two, two or three years that were milestones of the breed in the, the late 90s and, and the early early millennium. And K79 would be one from the mayors. 
um, and uh, age 28 was probably ours. Um, in this 2000, she was born 2006, and she won the Highland Show as a gimmer. The mayor's bought, them, bought her off us as a ewe lamb um, at uh, St Boswell's female sale. And they came back with her the next year as a gimmer, and she won the Highland Show. She was champion Suffolk in 2007 as a gimmer, and she came back in 2008 and was champion again. Mm. And she was reserving to breed that year uh, to, a, to a Charlie of the Ingrams of Logie Derno. Uh -huh. And uh, then she came back two following years after that, and she won the U-Class for four years in the trot. Uh, wow. She was first prize U at the Highland Show. So that in itself is no mean feat, really, is it? That's incredible. And I'm... But it's got, you never really went down that Aberdeenshire route of the big bones and chasing the heads and the top prices. And uh, yeah, what's your take on, on, on those sheep's impact on the, on the Suffolk breed? Uh, without being too disrespectful to anybody, Andy, I mean, there's no right animal to breed, no wrong animal to breed, but our sort of uh, projected um, vision with, for, for what we wanted to achieve was Kelso, and we never, we never deviated from that, to be honest. Um, my take on it is that, yeah, there's, there's different... Uh, Different strokes for different folks. The the uh, the Suffolk um, Society sales of Edinburgh, Stirling, and now Lanark. Very much there's a big demand there for out and out power, big heads and big legs, and and obviously growthy lambs too. But uh, for me, um, I've just watched the commercial men walking away from from those sales over the years, getting fewer and fewer coming forward. And there was a perception that uh, your fastest growing lambs were always at Stirling and Shrewsbury or Stoneley every year, and that was a place to get the good, the best commercial lambs. But I think, you know, every breed has to go through, sometimes has to go through a bit of tough love to come out the other side and realise where they've gone wrong and reflect on that and, and get to where they need to be. And for us, our focus has always been Kelso. Kelso has always been a, a place where the commercial farmer comes to buy in one day. And there's an opportunity at Kelso to sell sheep to breeders and commercial men in one day. And, yeah, we never we never went for, the, uh, for these out-and-out -out extreme animals because our focus has always been I'd rather sell... 12 lambs in one day to average a thousand quid, then one lamb for 12,000 and struggle and give the rest away because it's snakes and ladders. You don't get those, if you don't get that lamb away for 12,000 at the pedigree sale when the commercial man doesn't really want it either in yeah, most cases. So there's always a, been a very a good trade, Andy. The, the, our focus has been very much the Suffolk female breeders, the Suffolk cross female breeders, and those guys will come to Kelso and pay between 700 and a thousand quid for a a Suffolk ram with a great skin, silky hair, and a good carcass to it, as long as it's correct in its legs and got a good mouth. And you've certainly had a, a successful year's trading this year, uh, Scott, and I think uh, Kelso last week, and uh, you had some trade there. Yeah, thanks, Andy, we did. Uh, we we averaged 770, which I think is much the same as it was two years ago. Um, lambs is a very fickle market now, Andy. There's more and more people now who want to come and buy shearlings and just take them home and chuck them out with the rest of their tups. Sure. And... Uh, Unless you've got a USP with lambs, it's very difficult to try and carve out a marketplace and create a demand. And four years or five years ago at Kelso, I was standing with the, the CEO of the Suffolk Society then, a man called Lewis McClinton. And um, there was a two guys came up and said to us, God, we love your lambs. We said, well, we're coming to your pen every year, but we need to buy recorded lambs because that's what we, we uh, that's part of our shopping list. And unless they're recorded, we don't buy them. And when he walked away, um, Lewis said to us, you know, guys, I bet if you recorded your Suffolk's, you'd probably have really good figures because they've always been very commercial and very good carcasses on them, and I bet your figures are good. And I thought about it when I went home, and I thought, you know what, if that's the only thing stopping people from buying our sheep, and uh, perhaps it might open doors to us in other areas. We, so we gave it a whirl, and actually, do you know what, it was the best thing I've ever done because we started 
not only back fat scanning, we started CT scanning, and, and that's real currency. It yeah. gave us a real USP. I mean, we're the only independent lambs at Kelso that do have CT scanned lambs. And without going into in too much uh, of a of a detail, um, CT scanning is the full body scans that you go through, and it gives you real time data uh, that you can then turn around and, and uh, convert it into uh, a real currency that farmers understand. Like we have a ram there with the highest killing out percentage. We have a ram with the longest spinal length, the lamb with the highest jigot score. These are all things people can relate to, Andy. And I think, without being too critical of Signet or any of these performance recorded schemes, we get an we get a phenomenal amount of data back. Um, but in in many ways, it, it sometimes clogs the system up, and people can't see through that data to get to the real facts that they can relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had this conversation with Malcolm Stewart, who you've had on, and mm -hmm. Malcolm and I are of the same mindset that we think. You've got, you've got 30 seconds from when somebody turns up at your pen to, to match what they want with what you've got. Mm -hmm. And if you if you know your sheep inside out and you say to the guy, what are you looking for? Well, I've got North of England mules. Well, you know straight away I'm looking for a Suffolk top. You need something with a bit of a plus for fat. You need something that's going to carry a bit of fat, has a tight skin, and is going to grow really quickly off grass. So it has, has to be a phenomenal day live weight gain. So you can match these guys up and with a bit of confidence. I'll tell you something interesting. A couple of years ago, we had a, a family who have a Wagyu beef uh, business down in the north of England, uh, in Cumbria. And they wanted to roll their successful Wagyu business uh, into the retail trade, uh, into the, to the sheep uh, business they've got as well. So they came all the way from uh, Cumbria and they asked me where, the, where the, the ram was, which number was the ram with the highest marbling score in its meat. Right. And uh, I said, it's that ram there. And they went, right. And they just came and bought it and went home. Mm -hmm. And that, that in itself... Um, just shows that, that people get that stuff. It works for them. And, and um, would, I, would I be right in saying that I was involved with with, the, with computers, as you know, probably in, in the beginning of, of the when the figures came in, and there were some very skewed figures, and they didn't mean anything to anybody uh, apart from the few people that, that, that uh, with the likes of, of Alan Jackson at Rugby. These people that understood the figures and how they were going forward, but a lot of people would come to the sales, and, and they had no idea what these figures meant. And they, would I be right in saying the figures now have become? Honest is that the right word, and, and people understand what the, what what they mean. And they, I think the, to answer your question, I think the figures have always been honest, Andy. I think I think they've been rejigged. I know I've been on the other side of the fence. I've I actually mm -hmm. was farmed out when I worked for for Britbreed. I was farmed out for two months of the year to be a back fat scanner with Signet. So I've I've right. been on the other side of the fence as well. Sure. And then and that was in the early two thousands and late nineties and. Yeah. And at that time, there was far too much emphasis put on um, lean meat production, and they were, they actually used to penalise the fat lambs uh, too much. So, what you used to find was that the the lambs that you want, and we still want, are the ones that were laying down maybe three or four or five mils of fat, because they are actually the ones that are going to perform off grass really well, sure. and and so their offspring will as well. Sure. So there was there was unofficially part of my job with Signet was to get bookings in the book for going around back fat scanning and yeah. latterly ended up being a recruitment process because a lot of people were saying, oh, I'm not doing any more Scott. My best lambs are getting penalised too much because they're, they're, they're laying down a bit extra fat and it's getting hammered. They're getting hammered as a result. So Signet, to their to their credit, listened to people and they rejigged a little bit the, the uh, how they were uh, scoring fats. So now if you've got a fat on of three or four mils, Everybody now is looking to buy a ram with a plus for fat, which is great because uh, we're now looking to produce and finish lambs off grass. And if you've got rams with a plus for fat, that you're all the way and you'll get your lambs off the, off the ground really quickly. And to answer your question, figures have always been honest. I think um, what we've all been guilty of as uh, recorded flocks is sticking these cards up above the pen and standing there and expecting people to understand them.
Yeah. And I think that we part of our job is actually to put it into layman's terms so people understand it. Because like I said earlier, we have an amazing amount of information and much of it is really good information, but yeah. we just have to pluck out the wee gems and feed it to people who are look and match it with what people are looking for. And I think that's not just Signet's job, that's our job too as breeders to to take that information we've got, which is unique to our individual flocks, and match it with what people are coming to buy rams from from your pen at Kelso. It's an education, isn't it? You're dead right. And you mentioned Marky Stewart just now, and of course Malcolm dispersed uh, um, the flock quite recently, and I believe you bought a couple of his top gimmers out of there, and they'd, they'd be good honest sheep, wouldn't they, from Sandy now, much as yourself? And uh... Oh, phenomenal, Andy. I mean, we put. I bought two ewes, actually. They weren't gimmers. I went after a gimmer, unfortunately. I was outbid, but I, I got a couple of really good breeding ewes, and ewes that had left uh, daughters in the flock uh, went very well. And uh, that was in, that was the 26th of July, Malcolm sale. I've brought them home here. They're just running the grass beside my own ewes. Malcolm was up last weekend dropping a couple of sheep off for somebody who had bought them. I was going through uh, for Jack Lamb, actually. Jack Lamb bought a couple of ewes, and I was I shared a bull with Jack, and I was going through to pick it up. And I uh, took Jack's ewes through to him. They'd bought Malcolm's dispersal. So Malcolm said to Malcolm, come and have a look at your ewes. So they've been here for six weeks, and we reckon they've put on about 10 kilos each, and they're yeah. just incredible meat machines. They're just... They just do exactly what it says in the tin. Yeah, sure. So moving on from the sheep, uh, um, Scott, I think yourself and your wife Jane also keep a few Highland cattle. And uh, how did that come about? What 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 are your plans for those? Uh, well, there was a kind of there was a kind of reason to to buy and to to get in the Highland cattle. It was to keep Jane off horseback. Um, Jane, Jane's had a very successful in her own right career uh, with horses. She's been then at Wembley with. She was a member of the Eglinton team of old. Um, uh, when she was a when she was a kid growing up in, in the the pony club and a very able horsewoman in her own right and uh, she had sadly about uh, 12 years ago she had a really bad ox accident and the horse fell off her horse uh, here at home and fortunately I was here and she had a bleed in the brain ended up in hospital in intensive care um, and I suppose had a, had a second chance but was told absolutely no chance was she allowed to go back on a horse because um, you know, she obviously has a weakness there now, and uh, she could have another bleed in the brain. So, um, she had a great admiration for Highland cows. And so, to try and keep her off horseback um, or anywhere near a horse, the, the sort of part of the deal was right. We'll get some Highland cows, and we had, we got some Highland cows at the start. That, uh, and because we've got a lot of young grass here on the farm, and they're running amongst the Suffolks, there was a real opportunity there to try and uh, once we got a handles handle on how Highland cows were going to go. They're just butter balls off grass, Andy. They just they get fat and fresh air. So originally the cows we bought came with uh, beef shot horn calves at foot from Castle Estates, from a guy called uh, Danny McLaughlin, who's a great guy actually. He manages Castle Estates, and um, these were cracking cows, big commercial Highland cows, big deep bodies on them, and uh, didn't have not many of them had the fancy fringes that you pay big money for, but they were just built for purpose and. Uh, You'll quite often see Castle Estates name up in lights and open at the Suckle Calf Sales in, in October, selling cows at six-month-old calves off the mothers at seven eight hundred quid, uh, which is tremendous actually. Yeah. And we thought we just want something here, so we then we we started killing these bullocks uh, privately, putting them through the local butchers like Mathesons and Edinburgh, Forsyth and Peebles, and and uh, Mary Howlett from uh, going native and down in Hoyke, with really really good feedback because. Obviously, we're not killing lots of cattle. You're able to focus and, and drill into what's going on. So Highland cattle with a beef shot on of them, you get a beast with a, a good killing out percentage. An R-grade carcass killing out sort of 340 kilos to 350 kilos. And the marbling in the meat's phenomenal. And, but they do it all 100% off grass. So 
you've not got a, an ultra premium product in terms of an E or a U grade carcass, but you've got a you've got an R grade carcass which is uh, fairly acceptable. But the real secret with the Mandy is they're a low cost production system, sure. and the, you get the you get the added advantage of the eating quality of being a hundred percent finished off grass with no concentrates. It's phenomenal. And are you going down the pedigree route with them as well, uh, Scott? Doing nah, I've, I've, I've kind of learned that lessons. For years, Andy, I've looked across at that unregistered ring of suffix at Kelso and thought, yeah. yeah, you guys have got it made. We all do We do the hard yards and the registrations and, and the marketing and the and the My Divisna memberships and, and you guys just turn up with your tops and the commercial line <laughs> and walk away with them at big money. And I've just thought, there's no way I'm doing the same with the cattle. I mean, Gavin, my brother Gavin's, uh, he's going down the pedigree route with Simmentals and Highlands and he's doing... Uh, fairly well with those uh, on those fronts, uh, showing them. But I just have no aspirations whatsoever to start dragging cattle around the yard in the front of a forklift, uh, trying to halt or break them and stuff like that. I was looking uh, forward, I've, looking forward to you commentating on your own cattle going down the ring at Delkey's show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, we're very much uh, we enjoy. There's a bit of mutual respect when when nobody's putting halters on anybody, and we you, they'll they'll stand and let you cope them with a curry comb, and, and uh, yeah, th there's a good relationship there with the, between the cows and ourselves at the moment. Yeah. I don't want to do anything to jeopardise that, Andy. I've had a few relationships with Highland cows over the years, and some of them have turned out to, with uh, <laughs> bad consequences. It's quite funny when we, when we were getting our cows PD'd last last autumn. Uh, Stuart Wright, the scanner, was in. He was scanning the ewes, and he usually does the cows at the same time. And uh, he said the worst kick he ever had from a cow um, was actually from a Highland cow. He, he said she basically double barreled him in the chest. <laughs> and, and Stuart's about. Stuart's about 16 to 17 stone. He said he just disappeared out of eye shot, <laughs> uh, being kicked with a Highland cow. Yeah, I, I did a, I did a clipping demonstration for the the Queen Mother for the the 200 centenary at the Highland show. And uh, oh, that's right, I remember and, that. And uh, yeah, they, these these beasts had just been brought to turn up the field and, and and just a power washer over them and then tied up to a fence. And I was in there, and there was I, I found a photograph recently of the bloodthirsty people all standing there waiting for me to get my face kicked in by them. Great fun, great fun. <laughs> and you mentioned you've been closely associated with Dolkeith's show, and I still have the wooden sheep hurdles from the old Dolkeith show. They're there in our Lammingshire in France that I got from you. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we tried to streamline things a little bit, Andy. We were, we were with following numbers every year, come in, we were volunteers to come and uh, build the show. Uh, the days of chapping a post in and tying two bits of string and four gates have long gone. Uh, <laughs> We now we now have uh, we share gates with Harrington Show. We now put about uh, 400 pens up in about two and a half hours on on the Friday of the morning before the uh, the show on the Saturday. Well, they've done well with my few sheep in France anyway. And Scott, yourself, of course, amongst the the the, the sheep breeding and the commentating, you of course uh, keep a day job. And uh, you'd have worked, I think, with James Milne. Was that right? That'd be a, he's a good lad to learn from. Uh, yeah, James and my, I used to work for uh, Edinburgh and started out in 97 with Edinburgh Genetics uh, okay. with James and James Mill and John Hunter and uh, Bill McKelvey, of course, at that time as well. And then James and John went on their own in 2000 and uh, I went with them as their technical manager to the new company they formed called Britbreed. Yeah. Um, that was great, a real education. I was an embryologist, um, a technician and used to look after the Ramshed as well. Basically, when they were out on the road, I'd be kind of running the show back at home. Uh, which was great. Um, and, and just to say, uh, out on the road, you mean these guys, of course, were out on farms, uh, embryo transplanting, mainly with sheep throughout the country, weren't they? Yeah, they were. They would start off in the, the sort of second week or, or second week in July, actually, yeah, on Charlie's. 
and then they would finish up with blackies on the sort of last week in November, and uh, and of course winter winter time was out of season flushing. With some people now take their use out of production for a year, their best use and and flush them through the winter months, which is what we were preoccupied with. Um, but it was great. I mean, it was also real education on fertility as well, Andy. I mean, I was able to see um, the other side of the fence from you know people pushing animals to their to their maximum, uh, you know, to get them to sales and stuff, and then we would get them in, and you would see real real issues with fertility from animals that were basically growing, going through puberty while they're actually being forced for sales, and they were they were turning up, at, uh, you know, us to get semen off them. Suffolk lambs, for example, and there's not other breeds are also available, should I say? But <laughs> Suffolk lambs, for example, coming into to Edinburgh, coming into us after that at uh, 85, 90 kilos, and uh, you know the, their testicles were actually like a month behind their, their body weight, to be honest. <laughs> and just because of the, the the real commercial, the real deal, live weight gain they had. And it was amazing. As soon as you took them off feed, um, if they came in and they weren't any good, they weren't fully fertile, you'd just say to you guys, look, take them home, take them off feed, 10 days later, bring them in, we'll retest them. And nine and a half times out of 10, they were fine. But there was a real education there that you could see that was just like, you know, give these animals time. There was such a race to get them to the to the finishing line for Stirling yeah. or Edinburgh. Yeah, indeed. Donuts. And and we had on on a podcast a few months ago a, a Professor John Robertson and uh, who did a lot of work with Harbro regarding feed and, and fertility and and uh, yeah he, he very much said the same thing as well. There's there's, there's a learning curve there. It's not all about a big bucket, is it? Yeah, John's a legend. There's so much time for John. And so John John we we owe so much to John actually in the Suffolk breed because uh, John was commissioned by the society to look into why Suffolk's became uh, runny bummed, I suppose, skittery bummed in the in the sort of mid nineties. Uh, where there never used to be Andy, and mm. uh, he came. His findings were were uh, were very were very um, to the point and very comprehensive. And he, he discovered that the makeup of the sheep industry had changed massively in the in the mid 70s and the 80s with influx of continental sheep breeds into the UK, which were copper intolerant. And uh, not that not that feed mills and feed companies were putting copper into feed, but there was a lot of ingredients had background copper. To give you an example, Invergordon distillers dark grains have 32 milligrams per kilogram of copper, whereas North British don't because they don't use copper vats. So feed companies were throttling back on copper inclusion, and, and as John discovered, the downside to that was you had native breeds like the Blackie, the Suffolk, the Park Cheviot, and the the uh, Bluefish Leicester, all massively dependent on copper, suddenly sure. became uh, deficient in copper. Yeah. And as soon as we redressed that balance, uh, things have just turned a corner. You know, we're now most Suffolk breeders now in the UK will will, will copper bolus their sheep twice a year every six yeah. months. Yourself now, you're involved with the Morden Institute, and uh, tell our listeners uh, exactly what they do and what's your involvement in in that. Well, Morden itself, Andy's just actually uh, reached its centenary year. It was started a hundred years ago by a group of farmers who were going around. They created a laboratory on a, on the back of a bus, which actually, interesting, Morden have just redone to promote a hundred years of the of the Morden Institute. And uh, there was, we are so lucky these days. We don't have uh, to worry about uh, you know, back in the back in uh, pre World War, farmers were losing sheep to Braxy and uh, things like that, which. We now have cover for um, with, uh, with with the vaccines we have OVVAP and HEPTVAP, Pasteurella. They were losing sheep hand, sheep hand over fist, and really as a result of a lot of the pioneering work that was done by Morden in its infancy, uh, pre and post Second World War, a lot of these vaccines were developed, and uh, 
Sadly, well, we take these things for granted. I mean, Hectavac B is a phenomenally complex vaccine that's been made, and it does a tremendous job of actually protecting the stock that it's actually treated with. And a lot of that good work was done in the labs at Morden many years ago. Okay. Um, Morden's now a, a phenomenal uh, uh, globally recognised institute uh, with with world rec world recognised individuals. You know, many many uh, field leading scientists in their in their in their in their areas of expertise have actually hung their hat on their on the on the hook at Morden. We're so so lucky. Um, and these guys are there to be had to be spoken to and and. Uh, at any level by farmers whenever they want to, just about problems and issues that farmers have got on, on farms. And I think, Andy, in so many, we're very fortunate in so many ways that these guys are, as well as being immensely intelligent and expert in their fields, they're actually able to put things at a layman, into layman's terms. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to farmers and producers and, and breeders, but they're able to make, put things at a level where people understand them and people can relate to. And uh, that really does get the best out of, out of uh, the communications from a scientific perspective back to, uh, you know, boots on the ground and on farms. And part of my role within Morden as a regional advisor is to, it's really just I'm in the middle as a two-way stream of information. We key in disease surveillance on farms in the area that I travel uh, with my work and my capacity with Murray Farm Care as, a, as an animal health advisor. And also to, to, to roll back out um, research work that's been done at Morden, uh, you know, that can be utilised uh, or, or just basically putting scientists in touch with farmers where there's real key issues on farms with specific disease issues. If, if anybody that's in the middle of both of those, and I know I remember John Robinson saying the same thing, actually, to, to be able to communicate with the scientists and the, and the farmers at the same time was a, was a gift. And uh, I'm sure you have it too there, Scott. One of the main reasons for bringing you on to the Top Lines and Tales podcast uh, this week is to discuss your own brainchild, the We All Need a Farmer project. And for those of you who haven't seen it, it, it's a magnificent short film promoting farming in Scotland. And tell me a bit more about that, Scott, and where it came from and, and how it was produced. The, the, best, the best we describe it, Andy, is that it was um, much of it came out of the, the real torment I could see on farm following the second lockdown in December. I mean, in the COVID pandemic, during the COVID pandemic, when the first when the, we went into lockdown first time around, most farmers, Andy, as you'll be aware yourself, were actually in involuntary lockdown with lambing cows, uh, lambing sheep, calving cows, or sowing grain at that time. So they weren't going out anyway. So uh, farmers coped pretty well through the first lockdown, uh, like that everybody else did, really. Um, and then the, the real big hit from from my perspective was. I finished lambing in the end of January and went back out on farm by, a, by arrangement and by appointment, seeing farmers uh, end of January, beginning of February, and, and goodness me, the, the mood change was really, was that there was a real slide of uh, poor form, low mood on farm, people really struggling with the, with the fact that they hadn't seen anybody, they were desperate just to have some crack with anybody that was not either their, their family, people they work with, or, you know, they, just, they hadn't seen anybody for about two months. And uh, um, so I, I sort of was quite concerned by what I'd encountered. And then that was further compounded by a friend of mine took his own life, Grant Brand, many will remember. Um, Grant took his own life on uh, the 12th of February um, this, this year. Grant was a lovely, lovely big guy, uh, recently described by his brother Jamie, as built like an air raid shelter, uh, six foot five, and a, and a smile as wide as East Lothian. Just a lovely, lovely guy. And just used to light up a room with his smile and always full of good chat, you know. And the last guy you would ever think would actually do something as as uh, as as devastating as that as taking his own life and leaving behind uh, his wife Jane and two boys, you know, it was just just terrible. And I'd, that actually made me think, well, you know, um, 
this is this is probably, and I hope I'm not right, but this could be the thin end of the wedge in terms of the mood swinging on farm, and how people are actually not coping with the pandemic. So um, I phoned Nina Clancy, CEO of RSCBI, who I know, and I said to Nina, "What are you finding?" And she said, "Scott." The minute the Royal Highland Show was announced as being cancelled, their phone lines were uh, just r ringing off the hook with people phoning saying, you know, look, I had, the Highland Show was all I had to look forward to this summer. It was my milestone of, if we can get the Highland Show, we'll meet up with people, it'll be a great crack. And that, the message there is they just wanted to, to meet up with people. It was people coming together and chatting and a sense of community, which there's there's a great sense of in, in our industry. And I said to Luke, um, I'd seen a video when I was at lambing time. I was sitting on a bale watching a new lamb called We Only Need a Farmer by a guy called Paul Harvey, who was an American DJ, and uh, he produced this for Dodge Ram pickups, and it was shown at halftime of the Super Bowl, okay. and it was a beautiful production of uh, still shots, camera shots, with uh, a poem that, that he had written himself, and okay, his narration is quite quirky, and it actually was very engaging, but it was beautifully written, and it was very powerful and, and very engaging, and it was only two minutes, 45 seconds long, and I thought, God, you know, we can... We could do this for our own guys over here. Um, I just need to get the mechanism and just see if we how, if we can see just see if this can thing can fly. If there's any chance of of producing this, I had no idea that we could actually get this thing off the ground. And I was really it was a massive long shot. So I spoke to Nina. I said to her, "Do you think there's any chance? Have a look at this video." And she she said, "Leave it with me." So she went and poured herself a cup of coffee and watched it and phoned me back and said, "Wow, that's." Uh, that's very powerful, and she said, "If you, goodness me, if we can get anything like that for our own Scottish farmers, that would be amazing." So, off I went, and uh, within a week, I had uh, I found I, I knew somebody who was very friendly with Jason Connery, and uh, a shameless use of friendships, and said, "Jane, you can get Jason to to uh, potentially help us out here if we can get this uh, thing off the ground." And he, he said, send me an email with what you're planning to do, and I'll speak to him. He said, he'll do it. And I said, how do you know he'll do it? He said, he'll do it because he's getting married next week with his witnesses for his wedding, and if he doesn't do it, he's not getting married. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jason Connery, of being son of Sean Connery. Yeah, exactly. And I said, wow, well, you've got some hold over the guy. And he said, well, if he doesn't do it, uh, if that's not a hold over him, nothing will, nothing will work. So that was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and by half 7 that night, Jason was given my number, and he phoned me and said, Scott, I've, I've read your email about basically what you're finding on farm, and he said, anything at all I can do to help, I'm on board. And uh, so that was great. The minute we got Jason, really, things just gathered momentum because you had somebody who was profoundly well-known, and uh, he's also an award-winning director in his own right uh, for his, his own film called uh, Tommy's Honor, which obviously, as you'll be aware, Andy, is about the story of golf. Mm -hmm. And uh, he won a BAFTA for it, so a very accomplished man in, in that field as well. So the minute we got Jason on board, things just started to, more people came to the table wanting to be on board. It's the old scenario of uh, failure as an orphan and uh, success as many parents, and everybody just wanted to be part of this thing, uh, that we approached. It was superb. Um, so we had multiple uh, uh, multiple donations of, of beautiful still shots from all and sundry. I saw the, the credits are full of people who've donated uh, photographic images. I then went and approached a mate of mine called Ross Montague, who works for Seen and Heard. And I told Monty what I was trying to do, and he said, "Oh, he said it was a great idea, Scott." He says, "You know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, work we need to do to get this done." He said, first of all, we need somebody who's going to put this together." And I said, "Oh, we've got Jason Connery," and he was like, hey, "Really?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, he's on board." Um, and he was like, oh, well, that's brilliant. Well, um, yeah, great. And then I, thought, I spoke to Fiona Clark, who's an executive producer for, for Landward. Um, I know Fiona, and 
told her what I was planning to do and she said, look Scott, the advice I can give you is don't try and recreate another Paul Harvey because his voice is so quirky that it works and I think if you try and recreate the same thing, it'll just be another Paul Harvey production. She said, um, here's a production that was written for ITV Racing for to promote Cheltenham Festival, which was a Simon Mansell Broom poem and it was done beautifully done again using uh, still shots and photographic images and video and uh, she said that's the route you should go down. Well I mentioned it to Jason Connery and Jane said, Jason said Fiona is spot on, that's the route we need to go down. Mm -hmm. So she said just get, get pay somebody to write a poem. So we were kind of thinking, we had everything in place and we thought we've everything, done everything but get a poet. So Monty said look, I write the odd script for people, um, I've just finished doing one for, uh, for Prince Charles for the Duchy and for an article they want to do, he goes how about we have a go ourselves?" and I said you're having a laugh. He goes, no, honestly, you just never know until you have a go. And then he says, I'll have, I'll work away at my end. He said, and you see what you can do at your end. And do you know, do you know, Andy? I don't mind telling you, we wrote the, the we wrote the script for we only the farmer in four hours. Yeah, yeah. We had twelve verses actually. We, we shortened it to nine, and uh, with a little bit of a power the next day, then sent it over Jason, expecting him to go, yeah, lads, nice try, you know, but um, you really need to get a poet on board and, and pay somebody to do something, uh, to write something for you. And, and he was very, very kind and he, he emailed us back. He actually phoned me first and he said, look, Scott, um, who, who did you get to write this? And I said, it was actually, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, I said, uh, we apologise. I said, it was, it was Monty and myself. And it'll probably not be good enough, but we just had a bash at it. And he goes, I don't mind telling you, he said, it's a beautifully written piece of work. And he said, I wouldn't change a single thing apart from the last line on the last verse, which is, and that is why we all need a farmer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I said, seriously? And he said, yeah, just, I would leave it the way it is. He said, I think you've, you've probably covered a lot of things. He said, if I can be critical at all, it's probably too long. There we go. That was how, that's how we got. And then Jason, once he realized uh, the imagery we had and the quality of, and once he was happy with the, the script, he said, look, guys, I, I think I'm, I'm happy to do the directing bit and, the, and pull it all together for you, but I really want to get somebody with a profoundly engaging Scottish voice um, and um, I think uh, we can get a guy called Ian Perry. Ian was a was an, act, an actor on uh, Tommy's Honour and he's worked with him before and he's, a, he's from Aberdeen and uh, he said, I'll speak to Ian, he's just finished The Matrix, doing The Matrix um, and uh, he'll have a bit of time in his hands and I'll see if I can get him on board. Well, again Ian Perry phoned me at night and said, um, Scott, um, I've, seen the, I've seen the script it's a very, it's a beautifully written poem. I would love to do it. And I said, well, don't worry, Ian. It's not, it's not an interview. You've got the job. Mm -hmm. uh, so and we're just delighted to have you on board. And he's a lovely, lovely guy. He's a, Ian's uh, from Aberdeen. Is one of his best friends was from a, a farming empire in Aberdeenshire, uh, or his best friend at the time was from a farming empire in Aberdeenshire. The father died at a young age and um, at 42, and the eldest son of this farming dynasty was his best mate. And sadly, he couldn't cope with the pressure of being handed the reins. And uh, again, he took his life. And Ian's never gotten over it, really. So and has just said, you know, perfect match, it resonated. Yeah. It resonated with me totally. And and uh, he said, um, that's why I want to be part of this because he yeah. said, I think it's it's such a good uh, message that it puts out. I'm guessing all this was, or most of this anyway, was uh, voluntary uh, contributions. Uh, there wouldn't be uh, too great a cost to this. Well, I, everybody, everybody involved donated their skill set to it, and that included the photograph imagery. We didn't pay anybody for it. I mean, yeah. even Tom Lyon was a friend of mine in the area. He's a, a jazz artist in his own right, 
and also um, he's got his own um, his own company called Aspects of Sound. Tom actually pulled the video together, put, put it all together, and actually he wrote this, the music for it, for the film. So and he donated it, you know donated his, his music to it as well. So everything was done with a budget of zero. Just tell our listeners, um, Scott, exactly uh, where we, where they can find this if they want to to, to look to see this this program and. Well, if you if you go onto YouTube, folks, and uh, if you type in uh, "We All Need a Farmer," uh, it'll come up. Um, seen and heard, uh, seen and heard the production and marketing company who promoted it, and it's there. They've they've uh, they've they've put it on there, so you can find it on there. But it's actually just been adopted by uh, Movember, the people with the moustaches, who yeah. obviously pr- pr- promote uh, prostate awareness, prostate cancer men awareness to prostate Mental, cancer yeah. men. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, they've want they want to move in now to the promoting mental health awareness, and there's a very successful um, uh, organisation called Farm Strong New Zealand is now being uh, brought to Scotland in November. It's called, going to be called Farm Strong uh, Scotland, and they're going to use our video to promote and frontline the the awareness of uh, of uh, Farm Strong Scotland. So. Um, they have fif- around 15 million followers. Uh, Movember have so I think it's going to get plenty of exposure just around the corner, Andy. Brilliant, Scotty! A great achievement to you, to you, and it's obviously, as you say, going global. And there's a lot more to go with this yet. And fantastic, well done to that. A, a round of applause to you, to you, fella. And and thanks, fella. The, the time's moving on, and, and uh, the other subject that uh, a sport that we both share and love. And I know this is a is a livestock podcast, but uh, we both love the rugby and. Uh, I, uh, I I seem to recall you were quite a successful rugby player, Scott. We'll just uh, just have a quick recap of of um, just what you achieved in that sport. Yeah, well, um, I, I played most of my rugby at Watsonians. Although I went to Heriots, uh, I took great pleasure, and a lot of friends went to Watsonians, and that's where I went. And funnily enough, uh, all the time I played for Watsonians, I never lost a game against Heriots. It was superb. And uh, my real passion, if I'm honest, Andy, in playing rugby was the seven circuit. Um, I used to uh, I played in every sevens uh, circuit in the borders except for Melrose uh, because people used to come out of the woodwork and come back to training to go to Melrose and I used to get given the nudge on, not even onto the bench and just right out the window. And uh, Gav, my brother, a very successful sevens player, he's got a plaque on. He's got a uh, I think of something in the region of about twenty or twenty three winners and runners up medals in uh, borders sevens, kings of the sevens circuit. So I played a lot of my. Uh, I did two or three years of the sevens circuit with Gav uh, for Watsonians. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, I left, I kind of retired through my um, commitment to work at 33 and then Gav carried on at Watson's and he um, he got to a couple of Scottish Cup finals and won it with Watson's in 2002 I think it was, uh, uh, or 2006 sorry, uh, at Watson's and uh, stood very well. And then we both got asked to come back to Last Wade because they, they sold a pitch for development and had big plans to, and aspirations which was a club we used to play many rugby for as kids. And they wanted to have their aspirations to go right back up down through the, up through the leagues. So we both, Gav came from Watsonians back to Last Wade. I came out of retirement and we did four divisions in five years, three of them as champions. And then the piece de resistance for me, I suppose, and signing off in style was uh, getting to the Shield final at Murrayfield in 2010 with Last Wade and both Gavin and myself in the same team. I've got a picture of me in the changing rooms uh, with the medal in the neck, the boots hung up on the uh, on the hook and job done, signed off at 40, still playing first team rugby. So yeah, for me, I don't think I could have asked much more. I was relatively injury free right through my rugby days and um, the worst thing I ever did was stop because my body felt a bit so I stopped playing. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. So, and I know what goes on tour stays on tour, but have you got a rugby tale for us just to finish up here? 
Yeah, it's quite, a, quite an amusing one. We went to when I, we went to uh, to, to the Swickenham with uh, Watsonians and Scott Hastings was organising the trip. And the true Scott Hastings uh, uh, organisational skills, which was always nil. Yeah, yeah, I've got this, I've got this, and you get there and there's nothing organised. Um, we had sort he'd sorted tickets for us to get to go, and uh, we'd asked for 18 tickets. Well, he'd managed to get us eight. So we're standing in the Orange Street in Richmond, and he said, "Guys, you'll have to come outside. I've got some news for you. I've been to London Scottish to pick up tickets, and we've only got eight. And those of you who had to go on, go on tour first will obviously get first chance tickets, of which Gavin and I weren't. She said, "The rest of you will try have to try and get your own tickets if you want to go." So two old guys were walking past with kilts on and said, "Anybody looking for tickets?" And Gav literally like sprung sprung board from where he was to to where these guys were and said, yeah, here, here, we'll, we'll, we're looking for tickets. How many have you got? And this guy said, oh, I've just got two. But can he go uh, for, for, for whatever reason? And he said, um, you can have these two. And uh, I said, oh, brilliant, we'll take them. What do you want for them? Oh, just just what we were, what we paid for them, which was at the time was 35 quid. So we gave them 40 quid a piece and we were just tickled pink. And as it turned out, we were the only guys on tour beyond the eight who had tickets that actually got to go. So we all went to Twickenham together, although we weren't sitting together. And, had a beer up in the bar upstairs at Twickenham, and then five minutes before kickoff, thought, "Well, better time we started maybe getting our seats." So they all they all went off to the east stand, and then we we never actually looked at our tickets. And we, we went we came out of the bar, went downstairs, got our tickets out of our sporrans, and looked at it. And it just said enclosure, and uh, didn't say anything else. And uh, we said, "All oh, right, enclosure." So we we actually ran right around Twickenham and couldn't see anywhere that we're meant to be going to get our seats. And there's this guy standing, you know, with the Group 4 Securities with the, with the green jacket on. So you look a bit lost, guys. We say, yeah, we've got these tickets. We don't know where we're going. And he goes, well, you better hurry up. Uh, the game's about to kick off. And uh, he opened the big gate where you get the Arctics onto the pitch and when they're doing pitch maintenance and said, right, get in here. So he, fought, he took us right along the side of the pitch uh, to literally either side of the tunnel. And there was two seats right in the front of the pitch. And by this time, the teams are out singing the national anthem with it. At that time, Duncan Hodge was our club mate, so was Jason White, uh, and those guys were kind of, they could kind of see us sitting down in the, <laughs> in the front row of seats, and uh, they did everything short of pointing at us, and uh, we sat down, and we were kind of high-fiving us, and I said, oh, the guys will never believe this, you know, we've, we've managed to get seats, not only have we got tickets, but we've got right in the front row, right at the side of the tunnel, and Gav's like, before you see too much more, uh, just look left and right and tell me what you see. And I was like, oh, who cares? Look where we're sitting. He goes, honestly, just take a quick look and tell me where we're tell me what you see. So I had a quick look, and yeah, we were we were sitting in the disabled area, um, <laughs> two of us. And uh, the guy who comes round, you know, the English guy, comes round with the bulldog under the arm and waving the English flag. And he came round and saw us and sort of gave us a big thumbs up. Uh, nice seats, guys. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the word had got back to the boys, actually, before we got back to Richmond, to the Orange Street, uh, Duncan Hodges actually texted the boys and said, did any of you see where Scotty and Gav Brown were sitting? They were sitting right in the front row in the disabled uh, area, uh, just to the side of the tunnel. And uh, so when we got back, they went, can't believe you, why you guys had your seats. <laughs> but no, it was a good trip, and it, it always is down there. As you know yourself, Andy, it's a great part of, beyond the playing the rugby, the supporting of it, it's a great side of it, isn't it? Absolutely, is. you're right. And, and, and rugby is a great thing to bring people together. And talking of bringing people together, we'd better talk about Scotland's chances in the Rugby World Cup uh, in a couple of years, uh, Scott got a fair chance, I think, and uh, obviously it's down in my country, down in France. You're going to get yourself down here. Yeah, time will tell, Andy. Time will tell. Uh, it's tempting. Obviously, it's not that far from home. Um, yeah, I think you know there's a lot of water under, water under the bridge between now and then, and, and so much of uh, your fortunes on on how you, a team gets on the World Cup depends on who else's um, you know their run of form goes. You, you see teams in the past that that. Uh, 
that like this English team that won the World Cup in 2003, you know, they they basically just gather momentum from when Clive Woodward took over to to, to that end point of the World Cup champions in that year. And you know, we've seen South Africa do it, we've seen New Zealand do it, we've seen Australia do it. Um, Scotland, yeah, we've. I think we need maturity on our side. We need guys that are going to. Um, can play for 90 minutes and not panic and get in the green zone and keep the ball at the jersey or keep it in the van and not panic until they get across the line with it. We've got this amazing skill set in the backs now. We've got really talented backs and we've got a great pack as well. We've actually got depth now, which is really important because you get guys, complacency doesn't creep in. You know, nobody's jersey is safe anymore, Andy. It's uh, it's uh, it's really quite exciting. And it's brilliant to speak to you, Scott. With regards to the World Cup, the opening game is... Uh, in Marseille, and, and Wendy and I have our tickets already. If you get yourself down there, Scotland are playing South Africa on the opener, as you know, and England Argentina the same weekend. But uh, I believe it clashes with uh, Kelso Top Sail, so that might be you at the, at the wind. Ah, uh, there you go, see? Uh, yeah, unless unless you want to come over and sell my tops, Andy, and I'll go over and watch the rugby. <laughs> tops will sell themselves there, Scott, don't worry. Uh, do you think, before you go, honestly, on behalf of everybody who listens to your podcast, um, you have, we, you've been the subject of much discussion off the, off the air. Um, we're all immensely grateful, really, Andy, that you've, you've pulled together Top Lines and Tales because it has really brought a shining light into some of the dark uh, rooms that we've been living in during COVID over the last 18 months. And it's, been, it's brought people together from a distance, if that makes sense. Um, and has been, you know, the, the subjects of much chat. So when you're being talked about, you must be doing something right. So well done again, Andy. That's brilliant. Obviously, got to say that. Thank you very much. And I've really enjoyed a yarn with you. I've been trying to get you on on the line for a while there, and uh, brilliant to chat to you. And you and I'll catch up for a beer very soon. Look forward to that. I'll hold you to it. You're buying, by the way. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Cheers, <laughs> Cheers, Andy. Thank Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, which was kindly sponsored by Harbro, suppliers of quality commercial and pedigree feeds and expert nutritional advice. Visit their website or find them on Facebook for more information. And while on the subject of Facebook, why don't you visit the Top Lines and Tales Facebook page, where you'll find photographs and more information to back up this episode.